there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T for C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to work in public service, either in government or the field of criminal justice, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has spent over 15 years working in government in the state of Massachusetts. But before I introduce you to David Halbert, Outreach Manager at MIT's Educational Justice Institute, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays with unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is David Halbert, Outreach Manager at the Educational Justice Institute, an innovative and groundbreaking initiative founded in 2017 that provides a transformative learning experience for people behind bars and university students at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, also known as MIT. Prior to joining the Educational Justice Institute, David was a candidate for the Boston City Councilor at Large seat in 2019 in one of the most competitive council elections in Boston's history. His campaign was noted for its innovative and thoughtful policy platform, which helped him secure the endorsement of community organizations and activists across the city including the Boston Globe, New England's largest newspaper. At the same time that David ran for a city council seat, he was also wearing another hat as the deputy director of community affairs at the Middlesex Sheriff's Office, where he was responsible for development and implementation of outreach strategies for targeted communities of color, faith-based organizations, immigrant groups, LGBTQ organizations, higher education institutions, and service organizations. Early in his career, David worked as a staff member for former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick and former Boston City Councilors Sam Yoon and John Tobin, as well as State Treasurer Timothy Cahill. David's love of civic engagement started when he was young through the Boy Scouts. And in fact, David became one of the less than 4% of Scouts and less than 1% of African-American Scouts to earn his Eagle Scout Award, Scouting's highest honor. David, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? That I am. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. So what do you drink in uh, your household? What kind of coffee? Uh, most of, <laughs> actually, I'm not a coffee guy, oddly enough. So my wife, though, I think drinks enough for both of us. Um, but I'm more of a <laughs> more of a tea person myself. Oh, OK. So what kind of tea? do you like? I'm a big fan of rooibos tea. Love yes, it. Yes, yeah, the South fan. African um, tea. Absolutely. 
Yes. So my mother actually got me into it. Uh, she went on a business trip years and years and years ago and came back with a couple boxes. And I tried it for the first time and fell in love and have been a big fan ever since. But I'll take any tea, a black tea, a green tea, a white tea. But a rooibos is usually my favorite. Nice, nice. So you joined the Educational Justice Institute at MIT in, I guess, March of 2020. And it's currently the end of August 2020. <laughs> what does the Institute seek to do? And has your mission been affected, been impacted by the coronavirus? Sure. Well, the work of the Educational Justice Institute, as you uh, spoke about at the beginning during the introduction, is really focused on providing transformative educational opportunities for individuals who are incarcerated. We do that through work to expand access to higher education for individuals who are behind bars and hopefully also connecting them with good workforce development opportunities of a successful reentry plan for those who leave. The vast majority of people who find themselves incarcerated will not stay there for the entirety of their lives, thankfully. They will come back into our communities. And so we are better served as a society. And this is one of the animating principles behind the work that we do by providing them with the resources and support so that they can make better decisions when they leave so that they don't have to go back into areas and activities that are the kind that bring them into incarceration in the first place. And we know that education is an incredible incredibly powerful vehicle for that. There was a study done by the Rand Corporation a number of years ago that said that individuals who receive education and educational opportunities and attainment while incarcerated have believe, a 43% lower recidivism rate than those who don't. And that's tremendous because every person that we incarcerate beyond just the impact of that individual to their families, how it breaks up so many of their lives, the stigma that society attaches to individuals who are formerly incarcerated, unfortunately and sadly. We also know that there's a material cost to bringing people and keeping them behind bars versus having them in society and contributing. So that's the work that we do. And that's really the focus of our mission as an organization. While that mission uh, has not changed over the impact and the breadth of the pandemic, the delivery method has. The intersection that we sit at at Teji is of higher education and corrections in particular. And on the correction side, in the best of days, the, the correctional facilities have not been historically designed with a lot of intentionality relative to being conducive to education, being conducive to many things that you kind of take for granted on the outside for reasons of security, for reasons of putting your practice and thoughts around things into action relative to criminal justice and you know the punitive measures of things. And so when the pandemic hit, that made things go even further left, if you will. You know, you're dealing with environments where ventilation literally is an issue and you're dealing with an airborne virus. You're dealing with a virus where proximity and one where you are operating inside of a cell where you probably are sharing that with another individual. And the cell is, if you're really lucky, is probably you know, 10 by 6. And so you're dealing with all these factors that are being exacerbated by the conditions within prisons. And one of those is the introduction of new people. And so, of course, these organizations, and that's what they are, corrections facilities are partnered organizations. Their primary focus and function is care custody and control of the individuals who are incarcerated with them. And one of the ways that they maintain that is by limiting whatever they see as threats. And in this sense, because they didn't want to see for both the purposes of the individuals who were incarcerated and staff members as well, and a lot of times they're left out of these conversations, wanting to introduce folks who could bring in a virus that would spread potentially.
potentially very rapidly with devastating impacts. And we've still seen that even with the best efforts to limit it. But one of the groups that has been prevented for months now are volunteers and educators in many facilities, not just here locally in Massachusetts, but across the country. And so it's really forced a significant paradigm shift and, and thought exercise for us. And how do we bring education into these facilities in a way that speaks to the needs of those who are incarcerated while also understanding the understandable reticence of the management to introduce anyone into the environment who doesn't absolutely have to be there. And so for our purposes, we've heavily invested and in, in are actually on the cusp of launching a pilot program around two-way education utilizing an online learning platform that's Zoom-based, of all things, which you know, now everybody knows Zoom. We didn't have that before. And so it's taken some thought, everything from finding the actual, in this case, very large screens you know, that are set up for this, and that we can get into the facilities, talking about internet connectivity, which for, once again, something that so many of us take for granted, you know, you and I are speaking via the internet right now, but in these facilities, they are not built for internet connectivity, and there are heightened security concerns about where people are active on the internet. And so working through all those and trying to come up with plans that will work and allow for the delivery of successful educational models is something that has really occupied basically all of our time since the pandemic began. But one of the benefits of this exercise is that once we are on the other side of this, having these systems in place will allow our program and other educators who are engaged greater degrees of access to students. A lot of times people think of it in a limited capacity. I can only teach or I can only learn in places that are within driving distance of my house, the college I work at, what have you. These telecommunications, teleeducation methodologies really crack that wide open and open the doors to dynamic ways of engaging with populations uh, really across the country. Yeah, I would think that the scale that you would be able to reach would be boundless. It's enormous. You know, we're having conversations. Obviously, we're based here at MIT in Cambridge, just outside of Boston. For those of your listeners who are kind of aware of our local geography, but we're talking with facilities and correctional leaders in states hundreds of miles away because of the fact that we have this theory of the case that now we can successfully bring our our classes to their doorstep without actually having to get in a car, get on a plane and go. Now, and all of this is to say that nothing, nothing, and I think if you talk to any educator who's involved in prison education, they would agree. There's nothing that can fully supplant, and nor would you want to, the experience of in-person communication, in-person education. Uh, of course not, and that is the gold standard for what we want to do. But in the absence of the ability to do that right now, or in the presence of significant logistical obstacles to doing that when you are able to move around freely. This is just another tool in the toolbox that hopefully will help more people. Absolutely. And I'm sure it's something that our young listeners can relate to very much because many of them, no doubt, are going to college online right now or having virtual lessons and are not necessarily in a classroom on campus. No, and at MIT, we're in the same boat as colleges and universities across the country and around the world in regards to that. And one of the things that's very interesting is you know, the program that we operate in a traditional model actually brings MIT students into one of our local facilities so that they're learning right alongside individuals who are incarcerated. Same lesson plans, same materials, same academic expectations, and everything else. And it's one of the most powerful experiences that's a part of our program. And you know, we've talked to a number of current students and alumni who speak to that. And it's one of the things I love most about being associated with this program. But by having these electronic options for communication that allows the students to continue with that engagement with the incarcerated peers. 
Yeah. So, David, what are your various responsibilities as the outreach manager? And are you also responsible for developing and managing partnerships with law enforcement? Is that also part of your remit? Yeah, a lot of my portfolio is really on external relations and external affairs from our program. So a lot of people do not have a connection to the criminal justice system, to corrections in particular. And because of that, it can make it a little bit difficult in terms of, one, just soliciting support for the work that we're trying to do, but also just an awareness. So a big part of my day is thinking about who and how we can engage others who are outside of kind of our natural orbit to bring them into the fold and to let them know that this work is taking place, that it's important and there's a place for them in supporting it. Whether we're talking about groups like our local association of independent colleges and universities, of which MIT is a member, or our local business council here in New England. There's so many different players and actors who are involved here who can take a role. And sometimes it's just enough that you have to open the door and ask them to do so. As far as our law enforcement component, we are really fortunate to be led by two fantastic co-directors with Teji. One, Dr. Lee Perlman, who is a longtime lecturer at MIT, and he heads up more of our academic work, particularly in delivery. And then our other is Ms. Carol Cafferty, who is a former corrections executive and who a longtime member of that field and an academic herself in that area. And she brings not just that wealth of experience from those decades of service, but also just the incredible connections within the field and understanding of how things operate and breaking down the theory of how we deliver these services to folks who are incarcerated, along with the reality that comes from having managed programs, institutions, facilities, personnel, and staff. So I work in concert with both of them to really refine our message and get that out to whoever that needs to get out to. Sometimes it is government agencies. A lot of times there's a legislative component to it as well, but we're we're moving along. The most interesting part of the whole thing is, as you said, this program's only been around formally since 2017. So it's very much has a startup feel to it, which yeah. is interesting because it's a startup that exists inside of a very established community within MIT. Yes, no doubt. Well, I was reading your CV and it was listing a number of the things that you do in this role. And one of them in particular was talking about leading engagement with municipal, state, federal, elected and appointed officials and staff. And I thought, my gosh, that really looks similar to some of the work you were doing for the Middlesex Sheriff's Office when you were Deputy Director of Community Affairs. How often have you seen in your career, David, that you are simply stepping in different roles into the other side of the looking glass? You're seeing different angles in a prism, not prison, but prism with an M. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this one's probably the most significant example of that because so much of my career was based in and around government, direct government service and working for elected officials in political capacities. So it has been a refreshing experience to be on the side of things, to carry on these conversations from this side of the table. But I will say, you know, when you are involved, particularly when I worked at City Hall in Boston, working for the city councilors that you mentioned, to be a city employee for the most part 
part in Boston, you also have to be a city resident. And so you see life if you're involved in your community. And just about everybody I knew who worked on the council alongside me was deeply involved in their communities. So you know what it is to be on both sides of that conversation, to sit in those offices, work with elected officials around crafting policies and responses to the things that are going on, but also to have them happening all around you and be influenced by them and influencing them. And so, as you said, that's kind of been one of those themes that's gone through many parts of my career because it is so invested in public life. But now with this experience, I think that's one of the strengths that I'm able to bring to this role is that I can stand here in this place outside of a corrections environment, but also coming from those years where I worked in an interesting organization where I learned quite a bit about a field that I really didn't know anything about before I joined the staff there, that I can translate that for those who, once again, don't have that experience, haven't known people who've been incarcerated, haven't worked in the field of corrections, haven't worked around educating people who are incarcerated, and making that connection for them and helping lay out that pathway so they can get to a place of understanding and seeing themselves and their role and their place in this work. It is really powerful. Well, speaking of seeing oneself in a role and in a place, what advice do you have, David, for our young listeners, especially for our young Black listeners, some of whom may still be in school, some may be out in the workforce already, who are interested in getting into, whether it be criminal justice, but some kind of civic affairs. What can they expect? And I recognize it's a big country and there are lots of variations in different communities, urban, rural, large, small, white, black, Latino, all different ethnicities and sexual orientations and whatnot. But in terms of the experiences that you've had in the state of Massachusetts, what has it been like for you as a black man working in these different roles? Sure. Well, it's it's interesting. It provides you with a different perspective. There was a term that I came across when I was in undergrad, and it's really stuck with me. It's from W.B. Du Bois in his book on the souls of black folk when he talks about the notion of double consciousness. And that at the time, you know, turn of the between the 19th and 20th centuries, talking about the uh, black experience in America, the notion of seeing yourself, how you see yourself, but also understanding intimately and immediately how others see you. And that's something that those of us who find ourselves in groups that have been historically marginalized, I think, deal with on a daily basis, whether it's consciously or subconsciously. And so, and that permeates into every part of your life, really. It's not just the professional part, but as a professional, knowing what it is to understand that people won't always understand that in a state like Massachusetts, where I believe our population breakdown has about 7% African-American across the entire state, and it's hyper-concentrated in a few municipalities, quite frankly, that once you get outside of those municipalities, you can be isolated very quickly. Now, for me, I grew up in the suburbs of Boston, where while my street was, relatively speaking, diverse, uh, wasn't the most diverse community at the time. It's gotten more diverse over time, which is great to see. But that forces you to learn at an early age how to navigate those conversations. And also, and I really speak to my mother, who's one of my personal heroes, for the lessons she always tried to instill with me about being proud of who you are, proud of your heritage, proud 
out of what was done to help you get to where you are and understanding that you have a duty and a responsibility in everything that you do personally as well as professionally to help others. And so that's something I would put as a, not just as a suggestion, but also as really as a challenge and a charge to your younger listeners of all uh, races and ethnicities and backgrounds that you have a duty and obligation, I believe, to look around, to see who's at the table, to see who's not at the table and then to do what you can to open those doors for others and to bring them along because whether it's in criminal justice or higher education, government or politics or business or anything else, we are at our best and we are a better society generally when we are more inclusive, when we are more diverse, when we have more voices at the table. Yes, but it has to be hard when you're one of the only black faces at the table. How have you grappled with often being being somebody who is in the minority. I think part of it is having to be self-assured, having to understand what it is you stand for, what it is you believe, and where those beliefs come from. I consider myself blessed to be a person of deep faith, and that was passed on to me by my family, and that helps guide a lot of my interactions with the world, and it gives me a bit of personal and spiritual grounding as well. But that works in concert with the fact that I grew up in a household where our identity we knew was going to be challenged. My family has never shied away from those conversations, from those difficult conversations, but also understanding that you have an obligation in those spaces, particularly where you were the only person, not to always do the work for other people, but to engage in those discussions in an intentional fashion, to hold people accountable and to account for the statements that they make, for the actions that they take and also with a bit of compassion that I think is informed by my faith and by my mother that do so with compassion where you can and to do so in an area and with a, an idea and a motivation towards educating people and hopefully letting them end a conversation or an engagement in a better place and as a better person than they entered into it with. Mm. One of my mother's favorite sayings, and it's something that I really take to heart in all aspects of my life, is that you have to work with people where they are to get them where you need them to be. And it's having that understanding that a lot of times people are making decisions or statements or taking actions, sometimes yes, out of intentionality and out of malice, uh, and, and far too often, quite frankly, in our society. But there's a lot of times where people are doing so out of a lack of understanding, sometimes out of just general ignorance of things. And that if you can you know, have a small intervention, have that moment, have that piece of personal connection, you have the ability to make what seems like a small change in the moment, but can have profound implications down the line. And so, and the engagements that I have, once again, not shying away from the conversations, not shying away from the difficult ones, but trying to be that person, be that better person that my mother always wants me to be. Oh my goodness. Your mother sounds like such a remarkable woman, but oh boy, does she have a lot to be proud of too. You worked at the Middlesex Sheriff's Office for six years when you decided to throw your hat in the ring. And I believe that was at the end of 2018 when you ran for that at-large seat on the Boston City Council. What was it like campaigning and doing retail politics? It's hard. You know, I've been on a number of campaigns and a number of different capacities, but it's, it's cliche, but it's a cliche that's applicable and for a reason, which is it's different when it's you. It's different when it's your name on the posters and the handouts. It's your picture on everything and people are making comments and the comments aren't some abstract or somebody you know, but they're about you. 
and and it's hard. But at the same time, it's also an incredibly powerful experience in terms of learning and understanding more about your community. I have lived in the city of Boston actually longer than I've lived really anywhere in my life for over 15 years. Uh, you know, own a home here. My daughter is a Boston Public School student. You know, I'm I'm deeply rooted and connected to this community, which is why I ran because I wanted to elevate the platform from which I could serve and hopefully help and serve more people. And that's what got me charged up to run and, and what I entered into every day. And some days were a lot easier than others on the campaign trail doing so. But at the same time, I, I look back on it and say that even though I wasn't successful in earning a seat on the city council, and I ran an incredibly competitive year with a lot of incredible incredible, incredible people. And I feel very fortunate that I've gotten to know and befriend many of them. But I learned so much more, even than I had knocking on doors for other candidates in similar races, because it's different when it's you and it's different when you're having those conversations and you're putting your thoughts and your ideas and your beliefs really out on the street for folks to critique and kick the tires on and, and make their assessments about. But there was one story in particular that will always resonate with me. And I was out in one of our neighborhoods and I was with a volunteer. We were knocking on doors and the storm was coming in. And so we were right about to wrap up, but we figured we'd hit one more door before we started walking back to our car. And most of the conversations you have on the doors are about five minutes or so, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more, depending. And this young woman opens the door and uh, asked if the person on my list was there. It was her father. She went to get him and he came out and we had a conversation that stretched for about 25 minutes. He was an immigrant. He was an engineer who worked at a company, a nice, what you consider, you know, nice white collar job. And he talked to me about the struggles that he was having, that his daughter was an excellent student at the best high school in our city, one of the best high schools in the state, if not the country. And she was doing really well. And he didn't think that he was going to be able to afford to send her to college to continue her education. Even with working hard, he was worried that they were going to lose the home that they lived in because they were renters, because the cost of living in Boston as it is down around the greater DC area is incredibly high. And so they weren't homeowners, they were renters. And his landlord was thinking about raising the rent and it was more than they might be able to afford. He talked about the fact that his father back in the country that they came from was sick, but that because of the financial pressures and so many other things going on, he didn't think he was going to be able to see him. And he didn't think that his children would ever see their grandfather alive again because of that. And it stuck with me for a couple of reasons. One, to have this person talking about this uh, and to hear so many things was obviously deeply affecting, but more because of the fact that this person didn't know me. I was a complete stranger who would come to his door to ask for his support. Yes. But it shows you that power of government, that power of politics, that power of retail politics and the connectivity of it, which is you open the door, you don't know what's on the other side there, but that other person can see in you, yes, maybe just a candidate, maybe just serious policies, but maybe somebody who will hopefully listen to them and care about them and want to help them. And I think that more than anything is the most profound part of public service, whether elected or appointed or just a general everyday bureaucrat going into a government a job. It's that you have an opportunity in these roles to do so much and to help people often at times when they truly and desperately need it. And that is something that for me is incredibly powerful, but also it's weighty in terms of the responsibility that that puts on you as a public servant. And it's something that I think we all are our best at when we're striving to live up to. 
Gosh, you know, listening to you recount that story, David, I was thinking about the fact that that man who spoke with you was looking to you with hope that you would be able to help him. But I think that what you've just shown is that often politicians are also affected by emotionally the constituents, the prospective constituents that they meet and that those stories, their lives, what they're sharing with you really stays with you. Absolutely. I've been very, very fortunate in my career to work for good people by and large. And I know that not everybody who works for elected officials can say that. And so I, I understand the good fortune that I've had. And that's one of the lessons and one of the threads of commonality between them is that they are people who truly see other people, see their struggles and see their role potentially in helping them through those struggles and understanding that you do have that responsibility when you put your hand on whatever book you choose to put it on when you uh, swear that oath of office and that from the time that you're not just sworn in from the time that you're elected to the time that you leave office that really must be the primary goal that you have it's bigger than any election cycle it's bigger than a fundraiser it's bigger than a debate it is the deep and profound responsibility that you as an elected official have because you have been given for some period of time stewardship of your community, of the lives that are inside of it and that are things that are happening in and around it. And that if you don't take that seriously, it can have catastrophic effects and impacts. But if you do, you once again have that ability to make such incredible change, uh, even if it feels like it's at the margins. Uh, you have that ability to really and deeply impact somebody's life. I want to ask you about your time in college in just a moment. But first, I'm curious, was going into public service something that you had always wanted to do? Or was there something that happened? Was there an experience that you had that inspired you to do it? You know, it was a little bit of both. So I came into college as a, I was an English major in undergrad. And my plan was to go and work in public relations for the American Red Cross. And the reason behind that was I was a blood donor, actually, still am, starting in high school. My father was a, was a long, long, long time blood donor. And so the work of the Red Cross just kind of is particularly in that space, kind of fascinated me and wanting to be a part of that and serve. But I didn't see that as kind of a public service job, if you will, just more of a job with a public entity. And while I was in college, I got involved in student government and I had the distinct privilege of serving as the student representative for all public higher education students on our state's board of higher education. And and got to see policymaking, warts and all, kind of up close and personal. And it really was a kind of a light bulb moment for me there that this was something that really spoke to me at a deep level and it was something I wanted to be involved in. And so I pursued my career following that to be in that space. And I've been very fortunate in the opportunities that I've had. Wonderful. Well, let me just drill down a little bit more here. This is just a quick question. You said that during your time in college, you were thinking you would go to work in PR for the American Red Cross. Did you know what you were going to do with your English and communication degree when you graduated? You know, I didn't. I When I graduated, I was, uh, once again, as things had shifted, I was looking for a job 
on Beacon Hill, which is where our state house is. And I didn't know exactly what I was going to be doing. And it was really interesting. The job, my first full-time job out of school, I worked at our state treasurer's office, you know, and I didn't have a background in finance or anything like that. It was just an entry-level job. And I worked at the state house office. I sat at the front desk. I answered the phones and sorted mail and opened the door for people and welcomed them to our office. But it was a job that allowed me to meet and interact with a lot of really interesting people. And it did actually allow me to use a lot of the skills that I had learned as an undergrad, particularly around communications, because there were moments where I was able to take on projects and write letters to constituents and things like that. I would be nothing incredibly profound at the moment, but it's in those small moments where you actually start to separate yourself out uh, from a professional level. And for those of your listeners who might be on the earlier parts of their careers, one thing I always tell folks is do your best work because you never know who's watching, right? And that's really important. That's really been valuable in my career. And if I could fast forward a little bit, I'll tell you a great example of that. So I worked for, as you said, two different city councilors in Boston. One of them ran for mayor of Boston uh, and was unsuccessful. And because of the way our election cycles laws work here in Boston, if you run for a higher office and you're already on municipal office, you leave basically the office that you're in. So when he lost, not only did he not become mayor, but he and all of us as staffers lost our jobs. And... I was having a conversation with some other folks in and around the uh, city council after things were going on, checking in, and was reached out to by the next councilor that I worked for. And what he said was, I watched you as you did your work for Councilor Yoon, and I liked the way you carried yourself. You seemed like a, a good guy. You seemed like you know, you're working hard out there. You're the kind of person that I think would really be an addition to my staff. And so I ended up joining his staff uh, and being very happy that I did so. But I didn't think of the fact that the work that I was doing on one office was in many ways kind of an audition for that next office because the counselor was taking note. And so I, I use that as my example when I talk to folks to say, you know, it's really important that you're thinking about how you perform, how you present yourself, how you engage. And as you said, making sure that you're not burning those bridges because you never know when you're going to have to cross one. Oh, what a great example, David. And if I may, just to underscore something you said, David did all of this while he was doing the unglamorous work. And he's 100% right. Your future supervisors, your current supervisors are watching the way you handle grunt work. They are paying attention to the attention to detail that you have, to the care and the effort that you are putting into doing things like answering the phone, doing the coffee runs, whatever those menial jobs are. And you may be doing those tasks for a year, for a year and a half. And if you are crushing it, doing that, you're going to get noticed. If you're constantly looking for the sexier project and, gee, you know, trying to get somebody else to do the grunt work, they will notice that too. David, I try to ask all of my guests if they could share a time in their professional life when they struggled. And certainly to look at your CV, it would seem like you had one cool adventure after the next. But I know, not because I know you personally, but because I've interviewed hundreds of people and I myself have had ups and downs in my own career. 
that these things just happen. You hit a wall, you have a crappy boss, you get fired either because in my case, I just wasn't the flavor of the month anymore at CNN. I was 43 and that was it. They didn't want to renew my contract. And then I moved into public relations and I moved in at a very senior level as a senior vice president. And I had never managed a team before. And of course, I had never done public relations and it just wasn't a good fit. And they fired me after a year and nine months. You have to pick yourself up. You have to dust yourself off and you move forward. And those failures or whatever you want to call them can become, as they did for me, unbelievable gifts and incredible learning experiences. So I ask you if you've had an experience like that. And if so, was there a lesson that you learned in the process? Absolutely. You know, I, I'll go back to that first city council that I worked for, a gentleman by the name of Sam Yoon, who is one of the <laughs> kindest and most decent people that I've ever met in public service, quite frankly. And he ran for mayor and he ran against uh, the gentleman who would end up becoming the longest serving mayor in the city of Boston's history. And there's buildings and pavilions and streets and everything all over the city festooned with uh, his name. And so we were running an uphill battle, to say the least, through the entirety of that campaign. And as a city hall staffer, I was working nine to five at city hall, you know, meeting my obligations as a public employee. And then basically five to the next day at nine, uh, helping working on the campaign. So whether we were knocking on doors, doing standouts, making phone calls at events, all those things that you have to do, burning the candle at both ends. My then girlfriend, now wife, will tell you that there were days where I would come home so late and fall asleep sitting on the couch. And she would get up and go to work so early that the only people in our house that would see both of us were our dogs. Uh, so you're you're working hard. And at the end of all of that, you lost. And as I said, you're out there, you're public and you, you care about this person. I knew Sam, I knew his wife, I knew his kids. It's, it's in some ways the nature of politics and working for elected officials. It becomes all encompassing and more than a job that way. Not to say anything else or anything less about the people that I worked with, right? The other staffers, the people on the campaign side, we were all in there fighting together and fighting what we thought was the good fight for the right reasons. And so to do that and to see yourself as you know the hero of your own story, but then at the end to come up short and to have to have some real serious conversations, not just about the fact that you weren't able to achieve a goal, but that there were real implications on your life. You know that once the end of this term is up come January, you don't have a job anymore. And I was young and my girlfriend and I were talking about kind of what life was going to look like. And we had a small condo and we had a mortgage and whether you know, you've done a lot of good work trying to make a social impact or not, the bank still wants their payment at the, <laughs> at the beginning of every month. And so just thinking about those very real pressures and once again, the fact that you were associated with something that didn't go the way you hoped it would, but also that it happened so publicly as well, right? That you, you know, you have the bumper sticker on your car and you're wearing the t-shirt and you're talking to all your friends and you're putting all this information and care and thought into this endeavor and then to have it come up short. So it was challenging, but I also look back on that and I say, I'm actually as odd as it might sound, and of course I would have much preferred to have Sam win, but in that loss, I took a lot out of it. I feel like you learn so much more about yourself through loss of almost any type, professional or otherwise. And so while I was on a campaign that did not win, I've never for a single moment regretted supporting Sam 
being a part of that movement that we tried to build and carry forth in the city about the message that we tried to convey about the vision and the future of the city of Boston that was prosecuted that way. And that foundation, that kind of crucible and trial by fire has really made me feel so much more grounded in what it is I believe and why I believe it and why I fight for it every day and every time I go out, whether it was in Sam's campaign, others I've worked on or my own. And so I take a lot from that and I will forever be grateful and indebted to Sam for giving me that opportunity. Yeah, I'm actually looking at your resume here. You were acting chief of staff during his 2009 mayoral campaign. That was a big role. Yeah, for a, a very brief period of time, our, our chief of staff, who had just departed, I'd take on a, a full-time role in the campaign, was absolutely wonderful, and she left enormous shoes to fill. So a lot of it was just kind of working to help kind of keep the trains running at the office as we entered into the home stretch there. But once again, willingness, and you have to be willing to step up and take on those challenges. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, David. Final question. If you could go back to college, back to Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Sure. To go out on more dates, because when you leave this place, you're never going out on a date again, because that's where (laughs) my wife and I met. But in all seriousness, if I had to go back and talk to my younger self about the experience and the life that I was going to lead for this next few years, I would really say just cherish your time there and I would like to think that I had some of that perception while I was there and knew that a chapter was closing on my life but in college as you know so many of us know especially when you look back with hindsight is such an incredible period of your life in terms of self-discovery in terms of the things that you're able to do and the chances you're able to take and so that would be my advice to myself which is really cherish and maximize every moment you have if you have that impulse to go do that thing try it out do it i had an incredible college experience beyond the most important part of it, which was meeting my wife. But, you know, I studied abroad in other countries. I met people from across the United States and around the world who I I still, thankfully, call friends. But there were things where, in retrospect, I would have loved to go back and say, hey, go to Iowa. Go knock on doors for that candidate that you want to way, way far away from home, uh, as opposed to keeping things a little bit closer and being involved here. Have those experiences is find those other parts of the world and engage in it because you have a level of ability and flexibility. At least I was very fortunate enough to at that time in my life not having many of the responsibilities that I cherish now, but our responsibilities as a husband, as a father, as an employee that you don't have. And you might never have another moment in your life where you have that level of freedom. And so really looking at each and every day as this incredible blank canvas that you're able to write on in a way uh, with a depth and uh, an intentionality that you often don't have in other parts of your life and in other times of your life because you make those transitions. And once again, I don't look back on that with regret because the place that I'm at with my wife, with our children, with the home that we're in, the life that we've been able to build is something that I am so happy and deeply grateful for each and every day. But yeah, it'd be fun just to hop on a plane and go somewhere. (laughs) If you want to learn more about how to break into public service, either in government or in the field of criminal justice, then 
check out the show notes to see if David's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. David, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today, making time for tea, for Rubu's Tea with me, and the Time for Coffee community. This has been such a pleasure. Well, thank you so much uh, for having me. Thank you so much to all of your listeners for taking time out of their day, and hopefully it was worthwhile. Uh, And I just want to wish each and every one of you uh, happiness, health, and safety in these times. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.